All right. Well, how about I pray for us, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians 11. God, we thank you for a time to get together and study your word and be encouraged by it and grow. And I pray that what would ultimately happen is we would love you more and we would trust you more and we would be eager to live according to your word, that we would have a deep conviction that there's no better way to orient your life than to orient it towards Christ and Christ-likeness. And I pray that you would humble us in that and also encourage us in that, give us endurance in that. So we ask that for your sake you would bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If anybody wants to borrow my Bible, you can borrow it. I have it on my paper as well. Or you can pull it up on your phone. Um, I will read the first part because we're just going to stop after verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And uh, this actually begs a little bit of a question, which is I want to remind you, if I haven't already said this in this class, that in the original Greek, there are no punctuation marks, there are no paragraph marks, there are no indentations, there's no verses. In fact, uh, Greek, as it was written, was all capital letters, all smashed together. So, in what are called the majuscules, which are capital letters. So, if, if we were just going to make something up, it would look like this if I was writing. So part of translating is deciphering how does this all sort of go together. And uh, so the, the reason I point this out is because don't let the <coughs> Bible translation that you're reading influence how you think about the pieces fit together. Right. So exa an example of this is chapter 11, verse 1, when Paul writes, be imitators of me as I am, as I am of Christ. Does he kind of have that in mind attached to what ends chapter 10? Or does he have it in mind with what chap, uh, uh, goes with chapter 11? There's some seats in here. You can come on in. We can even slide some of the desks around, but there's some chairs back there. Just whatever we move, we have to put back. Awesome. So um, I don't know. What do you think? Does this go better being connected to what ends chapter 10 or what begins chapter 11? Or do you think it is sort of a hinge that connects the two? Okay, so they, even though it's verse 1, they connect it back. Well, it just looks like that. The okay, the way that it's formatted. Yeah. These are just interesting things to be aware of, and it can actually make some interpretive difference at certain points. Um, we'll, maybe, we'll maybe save that. But, uh, they, but they call it, but they call it chapter 11. I mean, it, it, you know, it looks like it's part of chapter uh, chapter 10, mm. but it, it's called chapter 11. Right, right. Let's actually look at a place where this, uh, it, I think, does make a little bit of a difference. If you flip over to chapter 14 and you look at verse um, 33, I don't know how it's format, formatted in whatever version you're reading, but the ESV, which takes a very complementarian approach to the relationship of men and women and women in leadership in the church, um, very intentionally 
sort of splits verse 33 in half and has for God is not a God of confusion, but in peace, period. And then begins a new paragraph with the second half of that verse, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. That's an interpretive decision being made by the, the publisher. Um, it doesn't. It, 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 so uh, it keeps as in all the churches, the saints connected to God is not a God of confusion. I actually personally agree. I think that's a better interpretive decision. But you can see sort of the theology of the translator influencing the way the translation is being done. So, I don't know, I, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference, but it's just something to be aware of. As you read your Bible, understand that like it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately is guiding the people of God to understand these things, and you should be a careful reader of the text and not get lazy just because there's headings or verse numbers or chapter numbers. Does that make sense? So, real quick question, yeah. so the person who's doing the translation believes that the Holy Spirit is guiding them in their translation of it, and the other person who does their translation believes the Holy Spirit is guiding them in their translation of it. Yeah, which is also why we need to make arguments for why we're making our interpretive decision. The Holy Spirit is ultimately going to lead God's people, but we're fallible people. God's word is infallible, but as soon as we begin to do the interpretive work, we're going to make some mistakes. But um, I just heard the argument that one person's quenching the Holy Spirit because this Holy Spirit only leads in truth, and you can't have two truths. No, it's true. You cannot have two truths. One person is right and another person is wrong. And, and this is where I think reason does also help us. Like, you make your argument, I'll make my argument, and then let's see whose argument is more persuasive. Um, but can it be, you know, like saying this, but also this? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if it's if it's splitting it, if it's splitting it, saying it's saying, well, we're splitting it because it's this. But in the translations that keep it together, they're saying, but it's also this. You know, you can you can look at. Are they saying you can look at it two ways? Because of the difference. No, I, I think what's going on is the ESV is making an argument here that this is the way that it should be understood. Um, you know, they're making it very subtly. Um, and again, these are these are people that have a lot of education. They're they're scholars. They know their stuff, but it it can be very hard to read scripture and not see in it what you want to see in it. So we need to just be careful of that. That was probably a bad example of what I was trying to look for, but yeah. Well, maybe later. No, you're you're good. You're good. Um, I see your words up there. I see. Hell, oh my. Right, hell, oh my, right? <laughs> yeah. So th th this, is, this is tricky. And people have been looking at this for thousands of years. So, you know, there's a lot of confidence in it coming across the way that it is. Um, but it's, it's just an interesting thing to kind of, kind of ponder. And please understand, too, that for the most part, minuscule, minuscule differences. We're talking about stuff that's not all that significant. It's, it's minor. Okay, so be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Does anybody remember back to chapter 1, verses 11 through 13? What does Paul warn about early on in, in the book of Corinth? First, the first book of Corinth. Yeah, following personalities. Yeah, these factions, right? He, he says, you know, you say I follow Cephas and I follow Apollos and I follow Paul and there's all these different factions. 
does him saying be an imitator of me as I am of Christ undermine that argument, that concern that Paul has? Is there a contradiction here? Why not? The personalities are taken away and it's Christ we follow. Yeah. Yeah. Paul is saying, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. He's not saying just imitate me, but what you see of Christ in me, know that you too can live like that and therefore imitate me as I imitate Christ. Which is a strong rebuke because a lot of people say, don't do what I do, just do what the Bible says. Sure. That's not how we should live. Sure, absolutely. There is a sense in which we could say there is a commendable person who is living out what Scripture commands, and therefore let's model our life after that. Totally. So Paul has no problem using his life as a model for others to follow. Um, I think that that's powerful. You could ask yourself the question, would I have the courage to say, follow me as I follow Christ because my life looks like him? Or would you rather say, I'm probably not the best example of this, so don't do what I'm doing. Well, if that's the case, then you should change what you are doing. Does that make sense? The classic parent, do as I say. Right, right, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, For the Christian, what you say and what you do should be aligned and it should be like Christ. So Paul uh, has also said earlier that his desire was to know nothing among them except Christ crucified. That's the kind of life that Paul has been living. And I don't think when he says no here that he just means mental knowledge. I think that he means a life that is in the footsteps of Christ. I didn't put a reference down, but it's back in... um, Is it chapter 4? I don't remember. He says that in here. He says, I I desire to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this isn't uh, just a mental knowledge. When Paul says that he desired to know, he's not talking about just cognitive in his brain. He's talking about a lifestyle. And remember what Jesus said, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them. So the implication is not just that you hear and know, but that knowing leads to doing. Jesus says, if you hear these words of mine and do them, you're like what? Like a house built on a rock. Yeah, like a wise man who constructs his house on a firm foundation. And when craziness comes, the house stands firm. And he says, if, if anyone hears these words of mine and does not do them, then you're like a fool who would build his house. No, no, you're right. I'm just I'm inserting that word. You're a fool who would build his house on a foundation that is ultimately going to lead to destruction. Um, so here's another question. Should this kind of invitation to imitate be only an invitation that applies to sort of the elite or church leadership? Right? This should be an invitation that any Christian can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. As you as you are hanging out with your friends or you're hanging out with your coworkers and they're talking about how their life is miserable and it's bad and you know, they keep finding themselves in the same foolish problems. A very gentle way to point them to Jesus is just say, man, my, I've actually avoided a lot of those problems because I have chosen to follow Christ. And I believe that building your life on Christ is like building your house on a firm foundation. 
Um, my life is not totally trouble-free, but I've certainly avoided a lot of the heartache that you've experienced because the wisdom of God's Word guides my life. So why not imitate me as I imitate Christ? But this should not just be something where we think, okay, yeah, that's a pastor, or that's my elder, or that's a church leader, and therefore they can say that because this only applies to like the super Christians. This should be something that any Christian can say. Any thoughts, questions, comments on that? Okay, so chapter uh, 11 marks a bit of a transition from matters of personal holiness into matters of church worship uh, gatherings. So this is going to go from like chapter 11 through chapter 15. Paul's kind of shifting the subject matter a little bit. And it's kind of important to keep this in mind, in mind as we talk about chapters 12, 13, and 14 in particular. Because we're going to see things like spiritual gifts and the chapter 1 Corinthians 13 on love. This is all couched in this bigger idea of what should right Christian worship, Christian gatherings look like. Okay? Any questions on that? All right. And I think it's going to get a little weird at first. Um, anybody willing to read 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16 for us? All right. Nice and loud. Now I commend, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tra traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the heed of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or pro prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or crucifies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as it, if her head were sha shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she could cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man... Out, out, not to cover his head, since he is, he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of men. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Ne Netherless in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. It is proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that if man were long, if man wears long hair, it is disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is glory. For her hair is given to her her covering, her covering, if anyone is insolent to be conscious we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. 
Great job. So that last little one is, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, that means if anyone is argumentative, then we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right. I think that this is a, a little bit of a tough chunk of, of scripture here. Um, I noticed that none of the women in this room are wearing head coverings, uh, nor do women typically wear head coverings in church any longer these days. <clears throat> so hopefully we can get to the bottom of this. First though, verse two, um, the church in Corinth in Paul's writing received quite a few rebukes from Paul. But uh, there are a couple places where he does commend them. He does encourage them on some things. Uh, despite, I think, kind of a, conf a conflict back and forth. I mean, there seems to be some contention, some, a little bit of like an argumentative tone to the letters of First and Second Corinthians. The, the church in Corinth does seem uh, fond of Paul despite some conflict. I mean, they continue to write to him. It's not like they just cut him off and they're like, you know what, this Paul dude, forget him. So I think that correspondence does show some affection, some willingness to have him continue to tease out these teachings and what they mean. Um, so Paul delivered traditions to them. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Does anybody have a different translation that uses a different word there? Ordinances? Oh, that's interesting. And I should have looked this word up in, in the Greek. I didn't. I just took the ESV traditions. Teachings in the NIV. Teachings. Okay. Man, maybe I need to look this up real quick. Um, so are we bound to traditions? That's the, the thing that I wanted to ask you guys. I mean, are Christians bound to church tradition? Somebody even want to define tradition? Yeah. Doing it over and over again. Exactly. Something that you just keep doing over and over again because that's just the way that we've always done it, right? Are we are we as Christians bound to traditions? I know some churches are like the Episcopal Church is very um, that's part that's kind of part of what they go by. Okay, so I, I looked this up in the Greek. It is paradoses, which means tradition. So I think that ESV does have the best uh, translation of that word here. But this is confusing because, in fact, Jesus even rebukes the Pharisees for their commitment to traditions. Um, he, he tells them, you know, you go through your ritual hand washings, but you're still filthy on the inside. Why do you keep the traditions of your fathers, but you don't obey what God says in his word? So what should, what should, uh, what should Christians do with traditions? Nice. I like it. <laughs> okay, so uh, one of the things that happened because of the Reformation is Protestant Christians essentially reject tradition. Okay, so the Catholic Church says that there are three sources of authoritative teaching for Christians. The first one is the Bible. The second one is the magisterium or the official interpretation of doctrine by the Pope and his council of uh, bishops, archbishops, really. And then the third one would be tradition. Whatever the church has done, we continue to do it because it is authoritative. And the reformers, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin said, actually, we reject any ultimate authority except the scriptures itself. It is 
our one objective, certain understanding of what God expects for his people. Obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit giving wisdom and knowledge to know what it means. So Paul is not exactly um, advocating necessarily traditions here. Um, Paul has in mind traditions that are grounded in the apostolic teaching of the church. Does that make sense? Like communion. Yeah, communion would be something like that. That's so you're differentiating that this tradition that he's giving here is not one that's biblical, like um, for all Christians. No, I'm saying that um, I'm saying that Paul is commending them because they are living out the intention of the teaching of the apostles. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that, that's what we need to be committed to. So in some ways, a, a word like, com, what was yours? Commands? Ordinances? Okay. And Dwight, what was yours? Teachings? Yeah. Teaching. So I think those are actually good translations. They're, they're, they're helping, they're doing some interpretive work because they're getting to what Paul intends. Even though the ESV is giving us the more literal word, the word tradition, you have to do a little bit more work to think about what does he have in mind here? Okay. Because tradition for tradition's sake, we reject but we do keep the teachings of the apostles as authoritative for the church. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah, but just so I, I understand, you're yeah. saying that this is a tradition, therefore, in the order of command, like from Paul. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's actually going to be really important because I'm going to go on to say I don't think that we need to wear head coverings right. in church. So we have to understand why do we not wear head coverings. Can I read a verse that uses the same thing in a yep. way that's really strong? Now we command you, brethren, and this is Second Thessalonians. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which we received of us. We're supposed to separate those that don't keep our tradition. That's good. In a sense. That's good. And there's a couple other, yeah. So probably the best way to sort of rephrase this is the tradition of the church is not authoritative. The tradition of the apostolic teaching that came from Christ is authoritative. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And we would simply call that scripture. Okay. All right. So verses three through six. Um, let me reread these. It says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. <coughs> this is kind of an interesting couple of verses. Um, again, not too many like shaved headed women in church and certainly at least at our church, we don't wear, we don't make women wear head coverings. Um, so I think what we have going on here is uh, Paul, Paul is appealing. Well, let me, let me say this. I think the specifics of what Paul is getting at has to be um, culturally applied. But I think the fundamental concept that underlies this is immutable. It's unchanging. It's eternal. Okay. So, um, and, and that begs another question because you'll hear people say, 
Okay, why don't we wear head coverings? Why don't women wear head coverings in church? Oh, that's cultural. We don't have to do that anymore. That's sort of a dangerous thing to say without more explanation because there's all kinds of things then that you could go on and say, well, we don't do that because it's cultural or we don't need to do that because it's cultural, right? How do we know something like love your neighbor is not a cultural thing from the Bible? Does this make sense? So we have to look closely at these, these arguments. And a lot of ink has been spilled over this debate. If you're interested in doing some more looking into this, um, <clears throat> on, on, on what Paul kind of has in mind here regarding the head of a woman is her husband, then I would refer you to what's called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And they would interpret this passage of scripture and say that in the marriage relationship, the man is the authority over the wife. He's the authority in the home. He's ultimately even accountable uh, before God for the marriage, his wife and the children, the family. And that God intends two distinct roles in the family for men and women. They would also go on and say that because that's true in the family, that also in the family of Christ, uh, the role of pastor, elder, leader in the church that is authoritative is also exclusively reserved for men. And that this does not mean that God values men and women differently. God values men and women equally, but um, God intends different roles for men and women, both in the home and in the church. Okay. Now, the alternative side of that would be what's called the Council for Biblical Equality that would be more egalitarian and they would argue that there's no no distinct roles for men and women in the home and no distinct roles for men and women in the church. I they do some really fascinating gymnastics to get away with that view based on the text. So one of the things that they'll say is this word head. Verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So that word is the Greek word kephale, and it literally means head or authority. But one of the things that the other side, the, the CBE group, the Council for Biblical Equality or the egalitarians will argue, is that head there means source, like head of a river, okay, the source of the river. So, so it doesn't mean authority, it just means that man is the source of woman because woman came from Adam, okay? Um, the problem with this is I had a professor in seminary who is um, a pretty brilliant scholar and he went literally through every use of this word kephale in all of the extant Greek manuscripts that we have and he found not a single use of this word for source. Every single one was either literally head or authority. So again, you have to do some manipulative gymnastics to get away from God's intention that there is sort of a male headship to the family. Questions, comments, thoughts on that? I mean, there's more to say here, but that was kind of a lengthy introduction. Verse three, just my first thought when I read that was, the woman's head is man. Isn't the woman's head also Christ? <laughs> Yes, of course. Um, By extension. <laughs> yes. So. Uh, it doesn't read that way. It just reads. It's like it is weird. Yeah. Um, let, we could put it this way: the man, the the husband, is accountable to God for 
the direction the family goes. Um, whereas if the woman is obedient to God and the family goes bad because she's under the authority of her husband, she's not ultimately accountable for that. Does that make sense? I, I would maybe be helpful to say Christ is submissive to God, but Christ is God. And there's like two different dynamics of that. Yes, women are submissive to God, but in that trinity, so to speak, of how it works, woman is submissive to man. And man is submissive to Christ, and we're all submissive to God. And Jesus is God, but Jesus is submissive to the Father. I mean, you're not comfortable with that either, right? In the same way? Like, how could Jesus be submissive to the Father when Jesus is the is God? Well, what about a lady that never gets married? Right, of course. You know, I, I, then, then, it's just... Yeah, yeah then, father. it would be her. It would be her father. But then also, you know, this aspect doesn't necessarily apply as far as husband and wife. But but look look a little bit further to, to sort of tack on to what um, Rick was saying there. Look at verse eleven. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Right. So Paul does affirm that like we're all submissive to, submissive to Christ. He is ultimately everyone's authority. But there is a created order argument here. Paul is appealing to the way God has built creation to reflect the Godhead itself, the nature of God himself. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man and the church. Man is the head of woman and the family. Does that make sense? We've understood this in the marriage vows forever. Who gives this woman away? Because she goes from the father to the husband. Yeah. I mean, we've always... Understood that. And I'm, that's good. And I'm going to make this argument later that one of the cultural reflections of this that's a dysfunction is women not taking the last name of their husband. Mm-hmm. I think that's a sign of an unwillingness to be submitted in that, submissive in that. Yeah. So add, add a little bit more, say a little bit more about uh, a woman's responsibility. Um, if, if she is doing as her husband says, if your husband is saying wrongly, what is her responsibility? Yeah, so a woman is never uh, obligated to disobey God out of obedience to her husband. Does that make sense? Yeah, so she is still responsible. Right. I mean, she has to be responsible. Yeah, let me... Yes, of course, to some degree. I think I would put it this way. If I, having the leadership authority position in my house, ruin my family, I run it into the ground or something. Um, Ultimately, I will be responsible before God, not just for my own actions, but for the way that that affected my family. Um, Whereas I don't think God places that same burden upon the wife. I mean, she's still responsible for her own actions and the way her own actions might contribute to that tragic outcome. Uh, But I don't think God will put on her the burden of responsibility. Let me put it this way. Eve eats the fruit first, and if you look at the text closely, God comes to Adam and essentially says, what is this you have done? Yeah. Right? So Eve did the thing, but Adam bore the responsibility for it. And Paul even says that in Romans as well. Okay. I think it goes back to that created order. Like he is the one who says how things are going to be done. Right. We are not. Right. And in today's society, I think even like the idea of like um, the man to be the head, like people don't like him. Yeah. 
there's an interesting sociological study that came out, I want to say it was about two years ago, and they interviewed women, and um, they basically asked them, what do you think about your role in the family? Is it an equal role with your husband, or is it a submissive role? And then they said, where do you fall on the spectrum of happiness? Are you more happy or less happy? And there was a direct correlation between the women who said, I think that my husband is the authority in the family and their happiness, significantly more happy. And this was a secular study. They, they, they didn't like the results. They were surprised by it. They thought the more liberated, free, you know, self-expressive, individualistic, um, feminist women would be most happy. And yet, ironically, the interviews proved the, the alternative. So, which we, we shouldn't be surprised by that because this is the created order. This is what God intends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and ultimately what this comes down to is simply a question of like, do you trust that what Jesus said is the best way is truly the best way? It's ultimately a matter of, of faith. Um, a lot of yeah. times when we, with, with the women that says, you know, do I have to submit to my husband if, if it's simple? It's appealing to a very small segment of things that will happen in a marriage where you're being asked to sin. You know, it's, it's appealing to the exception. Most of the, most of the time, the women don't want to submit to anything that the husband has to say, you know, like, well, we're going to move here. We're going to do this with our children. We're going to do, you know, those are all things that aren't sinful and the husband has authority over. Now, I'm not saying he should lord it and be like walking that way. I'm just saying that's the role. And I think women that try to say, they try to make things sinful that aren't so they don't have to submit to their husbands. There's very few things that sure. they're going to fall into that. My, my dad says that in something, I forget how long they've been married, 42 years or something like that. My dad says that in 40 whatever years of marriage, there have been three instances where he basically played the authority card. And my mom was like, all right, well, if that's the way we're going to go, we're going to go. And he says that in two of the three, he was wrong. <laughs> she was actually right. But he executed, later had to go back and say, you know what, I, I should have factored in your advice more in this. I made a bad decision. And I think she will be commended for trusting his authority. And my dad will be rebuked for making a bad decision, right? Um, I'm a good and faithful servant, the wife gets told, even though their home went off the cliff. Right? Even though it was difficult. And, you know, my, I don't know what made my dad ultimately pull the trigger on those decisions, but he, he probably should have factored in her, her um, thoughts on it a little bit more deeply. But, and, you know, in the end, it, it worked out. God's gracious, and so it's okay. Can I, can I clarify one thing to make sure we're on yeah. the same? So when Paul says the traditions that I gave to, he's commanding them, we should, because like, ordinances, this yeah. is like authority. What we're saying Paul is commanding them for is understanding the, the role of men and women, mm -hmm. not how it's played out in court, right? So that's the that's the authoritative part is that men, women, submissiveness, the roles, that's the authoritative part of how, how it's played out in Corinth is not the authoritative Right, so if I understand you correctly, Paul is commending them because they received his teaching, but I think they're actually dysfunctional in the way that they're now trying to implement his teaching. Is that, yeah. is that kind of what you were getting at? Because I do think there's some dysfunction here. I think what's going on in this whole head covering thing is that you've got 
the women in Corinth, or, or maybe it's both, maybe it's just the church in Corinth, essentially advocating sort of a, an androgyny in the body of Christ. There is no male-female distinction any longer. And you hear this argument still today from um, the Galatians 3 verse, Galatians 3.28, that there is therefore not, or I'm sorry, there's no Jew or Gentile, um, uh, slave or free man, male nor female, right? You'll hear this argument today. Look, Jesus came to undo all of these identity distinctions, and therefore there are no gender roles in the family or the church any longer. And what they're advocating for is a sort of androgyny, that like male, female are now irrelevant, and God just has one definition of humanity in the kingdom of God. And the, the distinction here is that... Um, there's no distinction between people in relation to their standing before God because of the gift of grace. That's what Paul has in mind in Galatians 3.28. What is it that makes me able to come before God? It's not Jew. It's not free man. It's not male. In fact, if you go back to the Old Covenant, the women couldn't even come into the temple. There was the court of women, which was outside. And so Paul's saying all of those distinctions that make one more or less worthy to approach the throne of grace, they're gone. It is only Christ that makes you worthy to approach the throne. But within that, there are still meaningful distinctions between the sexes, between the genders. And God intends that. That's not by accident. So again, he's, he's rooting this in uh, the created order, in particular or he's saying this is the nature of the created order as a reflection of the Godhead. Okay, so I'm going to just open the door on a recent hot debate within the evangelical church over the last couple of years. Anybody, can anybody define the term eternal subordination? <laughs> What's that? Jesus is, like God is the authority over forever, like, and Jesus is less. Yes, so this has been a raging debate with in the church probably for the last three, four years. And if you want to go home and Google eternal subordination, you can fall deep into the, the uh, murky black hole of blog debates. But the question is, did Jesus submit himself to God the Father only when he became incarnate as a man? Or has Jesus always in his role as son been subordinated to underneath the authority of God the Father. What do you guys think? You look like you still need me to define it. I don't know why that matters. I just I guess it does. So, it so um, it matters in the sense, I, I think it does matter because I think this argument that Paul's making is based on whether Christ has been sort of eternally submitted to God the Father or not. What do you guys think? I would vote. You would vote what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know enough. <laughs> there, there's a reason why a lot of these discussions don't ever come into the church because it's, you know, for practical everyday living, like how do I deal with an intolerable boss? I'm not sure that this matters all that much, but <laughs> it does have significance. So I, I actually hold the position that Christ, that, that eternal subordination is the way to understand scripture. That Although Christ is equal to God, they, they share the same essence. They are of one nature. That in his divine personhood, Christ as son has always been in submission to God as father. There are some people who would say that because of that, they would, they would accuse me of the heresy of Arianism. 
um, which is that Christ has not always been, that he was at some point created. But I think that the argument Paul's making here is that the reason why this is sewn into the fabric of creation and marriage and the family is because God in his nature has always operated in this kind of loving uh, role of submission and authority. Anybody care to mention any other thoughts on that? I, I disagree, but I don't really care to argue about it. Okay. <laughs> and again, what does it matter application-wise? I'm not sure it matters a whole lot. But, I mean, I, just, just one point of disagreement to say that Jesus was always submissive. I would, I would just say it, he became the son. For this reason, he shall be called the son of God. This is what the angel tells Mary and Joseph. For this reason, he shall be called the son of God because he was born a man. And then at this point, he's in submission, but he's, his glory is returned. Mm. Return to me the glory that I have yeah, with it's you. a good argument. It's a good argument. It's a good point. Were you going to say something? No, I was just going to say, just because God, you know, chose to reveal himself to us as a try, you know, in, in three parts. I mean, it's so infinitely stuff we can't even grasp as humans yeah. that it, and, and to an extent, I think it's not going to matter until the other side of the glory. Sure. So, but, um, so I'll just read a couple other things from my notes here. Um, those who hold to eternal subordination would argue that each person of the Trinity is fully and truly God. But because they are different persons, they have different functions. This argument seems to bring much more sense to the family structure. And this is actually what some of these people have been accused of is you're not actually reading it from the scripture. You're taking what makes sense to you from reality and then then opposing or, or like projecting that onto God. I think that's a fair critique. But it says this argument seems to bring much more sense to the family structure. God has not arbitrarily placed the wife under the husband, but has done so as a reflection of the Godhead itself. Now, you could still reach that conclusion by saying Christ at one point did submit himself as son to God the Father. That still works. Um, uh, John Chrysostom, who uh, that name means golden mouth. He was an early church preacher, one of what we would call the apostolic fathers. He says this, Jesus, therefore, must be of the same essence as God, for since the man is the head of the woman, and since the head is of the same essence as the body, and God is the head of the Son, it follows the Son is of the same essence as the Father. I realize that's kind of confusing, but he's saying head, body, husband, wife, God, Father. Makes sense? Okay. Um, and again, we need to uphold the truth that men and women are equal in value, dignity, and worth in the eyes of God, but the distinctions between them are not meaningless. And this is probably more important in our day and age than it's ever been. Um, you know, if you were around when we went through Genesis and I talked about the dangers of feminism, um, you know, I think, I think that spark kind of started there, but it's become this crazy thing now where, you know, Facebook thinks there's something like 80 different genders and there's no, you know, people will say there's no distinction between men and women. And actually young kids in the room, more and more of you guys are getting caught up in this craziness to believe all sorts of weird stuff about gender. There is a distinction between male and female. It is meaningful. It's important. It's God intended. There are two genders, and that's for God's glory. So that's actually super important. Um, okay, so I would argue here that Paul's concern uh, regarding a cultural issue 
Um, I, I'm sorry. I would say that that the particulars of how this plays out with the head coverings, that this is a cultural issue. And this is why I don't think that women today need to wear head coverings in church. What, what this is, what taking off the head covering was signifying was a, a, an, a, an attempt to cast off the distinctions of gender, okay? Um, and, and again, we see this today. I mean, I think a picture came out this week, I don't know, some dude, kid something, he's like a rapper, and he showed up to some awards thing wearing a wedding dress. Like, that's just freakishly weird, and we should call it freakishly weird. Um, that's an attempt to cast off the gender distinctions that God intends. So some modern day equivalents, um, I think something like being unwilling to take the last name of your husband is sort of like saying, I'm married to you, but I'm not really under your authority. Um, you know, maybe another equivalent would be um, gender non-conforming clothing. So this is kind of interesting. Is it is it like wrong for a dude to wear a skirt? The first person that wears a skirt, yes, but it becomes popular. <laughs> like pants. I think the first woman to wear pants was probably in sin. But now I think, you know, it's not a thing because the culture comes to you. Yeah, go to some yeah. tribes in Africa, men wear skirts. Go to Scotland, men wear skirts. In that context, it's not the skirt itself that is wrong. Yeah. No, what were you going to say? I don't know. Like, okay, well, does that make it wrong then? No, so that's a really good question. I think that it's not the skirt. The clothing is irrelevant. What the clothing communicates about who you are in that culture is what matters. It's like putting a rainbow sticker on your car. Sure. You're communicating something. You're communicating something, right. So a dude who shows up to an award ceremony in America where men don't wear wedding dresses is communicating that the distinctions between the genders are meaningless. That's, that's anti-Christ. These things... Yep, that's another one I was going to say, is in our culture, we wear wedding rings, okay? Now, there might be a reason to take one off. I didn't wear mine for a couple of years because I had hand surgery and it hurt. But then I saw somebody wearing one of these silicone ones, and so I went and got a silicone one because I want to communicate to the world that I'm married and that I value my marriage and that I'm committed to one woman, right? That, that would be another one. That's a good one. A any others that come to mind? To some degree, our dress. Yeah, what were we gonna say? Uh, no, I was going to say like there are some cultures though where things are like becoming more and more blurry. Like I know, like in some parts of Asia, like males are starting to wear like makeup, and like like they look so much like feminine. Yeah. And it's okay, but it's like maybe for that. Culture, so it's not it's not okay for them to look feminine. Right. Masculinity and femininity are distinctions that God intends, and those are good distinctions. Yeah. And I was just going to, we want to make sure that because they're trying to normalize homosexuality, right? Just because it's normalized doesn't make it okay. Like right. you're saying, the first right. person wears a skirt, okay, that's wrong. But now every, it doesn't mean that because everyone's wearing skirts, it's, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. They're trying to normalize homosexuality. But, but it's not it's a sin issue, the, the clothing you wear. It's right. a symbol. So, but homosexual, committing an act of sex right. is a sin. But that's what I'm trying to make sure the distinction right. Right. is that it's still wrong, even if it's normalized yeah. in society. And I, there wouldn't, might, I wouldn't say it is. Uh, clothing would no, be. No, the homosexuality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. what I'm saying. What so, about the pronouns? Sorry, pronouns nowadays. I know, like, I think in social media now you need to show what, like, what you want to be called. Would that be like? I think that that is an effort to cast off what God has has said is good and right and true. I think mm. that Christians shouldn't play the pronoun game. Mm. Um, 
I, I think that it's, yeah, that's another good example. I don't think that you should do that. I think if somebody is really insistent that you use their, and again, I want to say, because I think I said this last week, I think there's like, you know, 10,000 people who really care and are really upset about this. And everybody else is being forced to go along with this thing like the emperor's new clothes, right? We need to be the people who say the emperor is naked and this is stupid and I'm not going to be part of it. Right. But we want to still be respectful of right. people who, you know, so we use their name. Yeah. And just because something is cultural doesn't make it good either. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you think of, I mean, <clears throat> this is kind of all kind of scattered here, but um, like uh, there are tribes where people wear very few clothing. Yeah. Very, very little clothing. And mm -hmm. culturally, that's acceptable to them. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way they do things, but they're not doing it to make a point. Right, right. If I were to walk around in a loincloth, you would assume that I was trying to get some sexual attention from that, right? But yeah, there's some cultures where that's just the clothes they wear, that's what they have available. And right? if that's you okay. wore more, you'd be being immodest and drawing attention to Yeah, exactly. In that culture, yeah, that's a really good point. And there might be some cultures where actually the men wear makeup and the women don't, and that's fine. Just the women then shouldn't wear makeup and vice versa. We don't we don't try and break down the gender distinctions. So this showed up interestingly, and has everybody seen the movie Black Panther? Yeah. Did you notice anything about the warrior women who are his special guard in Wakanda? They're all bald. All their heads are shaved. And they're warrior women. Right? That's actually breaking down the gender distinctions, and I think it's very intentional. Now, there are some tribes in Africa where the women do have shaved heads. That's okay, but they're not the warriors. They're not the ones carrying the spears and protecting the kings. So I think that that's a, a, a very clear image of our culture saying that, you know, women can be men and vice versa. It doesn't work like that. Any thoughts, questions, comments on that? We do need to be just... Um, careful about this because I think sadly because this is such an area of pressure in our culture there's lots of people who are confused and so we really want to be gentle with those people we don't you know we don't want to be we don't want to hit them too hard with the stick but um, this is this is a thing that is displeasing to God and we should make sure that we are that we are willing to say that that's true and stand for that okay um, a little side note here. It is interesting at this point that, um, so in, in chapter 14, verse 34, if you want to look there real quick, somebody want to read that verse for us? We actually sort of looked at it earlier, but women should be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive as the law also says. Um, we sometimes have women pray in our church. We have women sing in our church. Um, we sometimes have women read scripture in our church. Are we violating this command? There's another verse that talks about women praying in the church. So Paul actually says it right here. Um, he says, Verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So I do think we need to find a way to reconcile these two. I, I don't think that Paul later in verse 14 has in mind an absolute prohibition on women opening their mouths in church, saying anything whatsoever. Um, so we'll have to deal with that difficulty when we get to chapter 14. I'm not teaching it, so good luck with that. I'm <laughs> kidding. No I'm kidding. Um, 
But I, I, I do think we have to find a way to put these together. And I, I don't think that Paul has in mind that women should not ever say anything in the church setting at all. Um, when he wrote this to this church, wasn't the community at the time like very feministic and like the women were speaking out like culturally? Like that was like one of the problems in that. Like it was one of like the first feminists. They worshipped a female god that was a Greek god. So that is one of the arguments related to chapter fourteen. That it is it is a particular issue with the church in Corinth that you have these women that are very, yeah, essentially feministic and kind of um, taking upon themselves roles that you know they they shouldn't have taken upon themselves. Like arguing with men in the church without their husband's blessing. Yeah, I'm not not necessarily convinced by that. I I think that, um, again, going back to like the created order, I think it is God's intention that for the church there is like a male headship, a male leadership, particularly with pastors and elders. Um, And I I just don't think that, uh, that what Paul has in mind there, again, is that women absolutely should have nothing to contribute vocally to the body of Christ. That's that verse you pointed out that as in all the churches of the saints, right? Where does it go? So I think that uh, I disagree with what the ESV does here I think it should say for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints So that is a way to then make this argument that it was a particular issue for the church in Corinth I, Again, I'm not entirely convinced by that and, and the reason why is because man always bucks God's intention for creation man hates the constraints that God has put upon him mm-hmm. and one of those constraints is that women are to be under the authority of men yes okay, so um, I love your questions by the way back to uh, what am I saying okay so you know how like you're talking about like I'm sorry, what's your name again? Me? Yes. Catherine with a K. Okay, so what Catherine was saying, like, um, anyways, so, <laughs> I haven't read it. So, like, was that just towards the church? Like, when Paul, Paul was saying yeah. that? Or was it, is it towards us, too? That's a really good mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. I... Don't think that Paul expects that people everywhere are going to obey this because Paul knows that most people don't believe what God says. They, they are rebel, rebels against him. But Paul is saying this to the church in Corinth. And I think, he, I think because God has given this to us in his word that it also has meaning for us today. Is that helpful or no? You got a follow-up question? Yeah, but then like, so we're not supposed to say anything? Like... Well, that, that's, what, that's what I'm saying is I don't think Paul is teaching that women should say nothing in church. I think Paul is going to make the argument that when it comes to uh, causing problems in the church body, disorderly conduct in the church gathering, things that are distracting, that displeases God and it's dishonoring to God. And so that shouldn't be occurring. But I do think Paul is also going to teach that men are the ones who have the leadership, doctrinal, teaching authority in the church. Does that make sense? Okay. Like basically like a pastor, for example, is going to be a male pastor. Right. There's not going to be a female pastor. Right. There is going to be a male elder. It's not going to be a female elder. Because once again, God cares about 
the order of things. And he, you know how he mentioned like God, then Jesus, then male, then the wife. Right. So because he's a God of order. Yeah. But then what about kids ministry? Because isn't that still like teaching? Well, the Bible does talk about how women aren't supposed to teach men, and I think that's one of the reasons why they aren't supposed to be speaking up in the churches, because it's really easy to start teaching when we're talking about the things in the churches. Yeah. And then it talks about how we're supposed to ask our husbands, so I think that just follows that order. If I have a question, then I can ask him. I don't need to bring it up in front of everyone necessarily. Yeah. Children are supposed to be respectable to adults in general. Okay? So I think that that means that uh, when, when Paul says that I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, that it is particularly men who are of grown age. In our culture, we would say 18, but even that is not the Bible's number. But men who are of, you know, maturity. Um, so I think that that does leave open something like children's ministry. Um, and let's also say here too, like I, I think it's totally appropriate for a woman to stand in front of the church and give a testimony of God's grace in her life. Um, I wouldn't call that teaching. I would call that something like sharing. I would call it testifying. I think, you you know, you just, you have to be careful about that. Um, but I don't think the Bible forbids something like that. I think it is, it, it is along the lines of like, we're teaching God's word, word, we're making authoritative statements about what this means. We're defining good doctrine versus bad doctrine. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean women can't, does, don't have input. Yeah. Women do have input. And women, and yeah. Other women. So women can lead other women in, and help and disciple other women. I mean, there's there's other roles women can take. As, but, but I don't mean in a teaching role, though, for, for men. I mean, you can stand up in church and say, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think this is a good idea. Perhaps we should talk about this, you know, that sort of sure. thing. Sure, yeah. That's, that, that doesn't mean she says nothing. Right. And also, just because the elders have authority doesn't mean that they, they do that without the accountability without, of the right. congregation. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, they might have the same kind of mistake that my dad made in relation to the church. That's possible. It happens. But, but that doesn't mean that elders are just like, we're the boss around here, so you all have to do what we say. That's not how this is supposed to work. Um, man, there's so much more to say about this. I thought maybe we'd get through it, but I was foolish to think that. So is it okay if I come back next week? I think yeah. there's, okay. Um, I feel like there was one other thing I was gonna say about that. Oh yeah, I mean, there've been times where even like our elder team, you know, it's like maybe we should go home and talk with our wives about this. And then let's talk again once we've had, you know, some input from another perspective. Um, that That kind of, work has served us well at times. So let me pray. Um, God, these are sometimes complex, difficult things, but we thank you that following you is quite simple. Just laying our lives down, um, ultimately submitting ourselves to you, loving what you love, desiring what you desire. And I, I personally get a lot of joy. I think it's fun to talk about these uh, intricate details of your word. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get distracted by doing that from the simple calling that we have on our lives to follow Christ. I pray that we would be committed to that and that it would be our joy and our desire and our hope and just everything that we, we set our heart's desire on. 
Um, so we ask you to do that in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.